Welcome to episode 26 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. Uh, this one, we've had lots of warm nights and no wind, so that's uh, pretty good. I'm Chris, and with me is... Shane, also <laughs> enjoying the warm nights. Finally able to get some observing in. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so we're amateur astronomers, and we do this podcast because, uh, well, this is what we like to do. Um, we like to do astronomy, we like to talk about it, and uh, we do a lot of this anyway, so... <laughs> This is almost exactly as per our regular conversations. And then I teach uh, some astronomy courses. And so I sort of intermix a lot of the stuff that I do for those courses, which have been on pause, but which will start back up in August. So I'm pretty excited about that. So it's been nice and warm, eh? Yeah, yeah, warm without wind. And we had a couple of evenings where the clouds broke and allowed for some observing, which was nice. Yeah, and uh, we're actually getting some darker skies creeping back in slowly but surely. I think yeah. I think this is going to be a wet week, but hopefully yes. this will be the last round of rain for a while. Fingers crossed. You know, and I like we I think we said maybe in one of the previous podcasts, if there's going to be bad weather during the warmer observing months, let it be June uh, because the nights are too short anyway, and we don't do a lot of observing. So. Uh, yeah, hopefully we get into some dry observing weather as the days get shorter and the nights get longer. Yeah, sounds good. So I think you said like just in one of our brief uh, email exchanges or text messaging or something that you had a couple hours in on Thursday night. Just wondering what you get up to that night. Yeah, yeah. I had a really fun session on Thursday night um, from about, I don't know, quarter to nine uh, is when I started. And then I stayed out there for a couple of hours. I uh, was using my 76 millimeter Takahashi uh, focal length uh, or focal ratio of 7.5. And this is a refractor. Uh, yeah, a little the refractor. The new refractor, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I started off with the moon, which was, I don't know what it was that night, maybe 30%? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Um, and I spent a lot of time on, uh, I think it's called Poseidon. Poseidon Poseidonias? Yeah, I mean, you could say it right or wrong to me. I, that's a name I don't ever recall hearing before. <laughs> yeah, so what was really cool, and, and this is uh, in general what I like to do with the moon, but was what was really cool about this crater was like the crater itself was pretty much black because the way the, the angle of the sun didn't illuminate it, but the, the crater walls were very bright. Um, but what was also interesting is a lot of these craters have a little mound in the middle. And so while the entire crater was basically black, the little mound in the middle was illuminated and I uh, was able to see that. And I, I like to look for those features on the moon, you know, near that terminator where there's a lot of darkness, but then you just see like the peak of something catching yeah. and reflecting some sunlight. Um, and uh, yeah, I find that kind of neat. So I spent a lot of time looking at that. Um, aren't those aren't those little mounds that like you refer to as little mounds? So it's a crater, and then in the middle there's this little mound. And my understanding is the uh, the action behind it is that uh, you know during the early formation of the moon, like several billion years ago, I think it was like three point nine billion years ago during the late heavy bombardment or something like that. Like there was an impact of like an asteroid, like a really large meteor that came in and smoked the moon, and then like because it was still liquid or it liquefied the mantle, the material that's uh, that's there, it kind of kind of like a rebound in the middle occurred but aren't those those little rebound things aren't they like the size of everest or something like that like they're really really tall mountains aren't they or thousands of feet high anyway yeah they'd be pretty large um you know features 
I don't know what the resolving, like the limiting resolving power of a 76 millimeter telescope would be in terms of how large or how, I guess, you know, how small of a feature you can see on the moon. Uh, I don't know if they'd be as large as Everest, but certainly they'd be, they'd be pretty huge. And, yeah. They're you know, if I can see them with a little telescope. Yeah. 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 So did that. And I was playing around with some old eyepieces again. Um, I received a, uh, it's a, a Huygens eyepiece um, made by GoTo. So that's a Japanese company. Um, they still and it was make made, stuff, I think, eh? Yeah, I don't think they make anything for astronomy anymore. I think they're more in the medical optics mm. field or maybe just yeah. general optics like glasses yeah, and at, things. I'm not 100% sure. One day. Um, yeah. But they, as far as I know, they don't make any tele telescope or astronomy stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but anyway, this, this Huygens that I got from, uh, or that was made by them is a, uh, it's a 25 millimeter, but it's a module eyepiece with four components to it. And you can kind of unscrew it, remove a component, put it back together. And then it's a 12 and a half millimeter eyepiece. So kind of neat, kind of adaptable. Um, so I was playing around with that as well as uh, some Zeiss Huygens uh, that I have, uh, 25 millimeter and a 16 millimeter. And you know, they are just on, like on axis, like in the middle of the eyepiece, they really are fantastic. Um, now there's a lot of detractors, you know, the eye relief is kind of tight, the field of view is narrow, the edges are a little bit soft, but um, you know, probably about 60 to 70% of that field of view was really, really nice. And the reason I'm mentioning that is these eyepieces are quite cheap if you find them. Now they're a little hard to find because they're old. Um, but if you do come across them, um, you know, give them a try because they, <laughs> they might impress you. Uh, they were, they were quite sharp. Cool. Yeah. And there was some earth shine that night, which was kind of neat. So earth shine, like when the moon is in phases, um, the earth shine is, you, you'll notice kind of the outline of the moon and, and you'll see the entire circle and kind of the dark part of the moon is a little bit reflective or, or it looks like there's almost like a dim light over there. And that's the light reflected from earth uh, back to the moon that's causing that. So I was uh, observing that a little bit. Um, and then I looked at some double stars, uh, the double-double up in Lyra. Uh, Elbirio and Polaris. It was a fun night. Oh, cool. So what, um, how many double stars did you look at in total? Well, so the double double, that's two sets of two. Um, that one had, uh, I had to put some considerable power on that for that little telescope. I had to use a five millimeter eyepiece, which would get it uh, just over a hundred times magnification in order to split them. Uh, but it was a pretty easy split uh, at that point. So I guess two sets of two there. And now uh, Albirio is uh, the, quite a famous double star, but the thing is it's not an actual double star. It's a, an optical alignment. They're not actually in a system together. Uh, but what makes them fantastic to look at is one is like an orangey red star and the other one is a blue star. So you really get that sense of the, the color contrast. And then our North Star, uh, Polaris, um, has a very faint companion. Um, Polaris itself, do you, do you know what magnitude that is, Chris, offhand? Probably around... Somewhere in two, Yeah, three. yeah, something like that. Uh, and its companion is magnitude 11. So it's quite a difference in brightness between the two stars. And uh, that's, that's a fun one to look at. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how about you? I think you had some observing too. 
Yeah, like not that much. Like I think you said you were up for a couple hours. Um, I was out for about half an hour or so on, I guess it was on Friday evening. And then okay. I was just looking at Jupiter and Saturn. Did you get a chance to look at Jupiter and Saturn when you were out? Well, naked eye, I saw Jupiter. Um, it just, with the buildings around my house, I don't have a great view of that horizon. And in order to see it, I probably would have had to stay up another hour for it to be decently positioned. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I, I didn't look at it with a telescope. And that's like the only advantage I have at my location is when the planets are up, I can see them and I can see lots and lots of light pollution too. <laughs> yeah. So, but I have, I have good horizons here. So yeah, I had a, had a nice look at Jupiter through my hundred millimeter uh, refractor. And this is basically just like the next size up version of your telescope. Right. Um, and I was using that five millimeter uh, Nikon NAV eyepiece or nav eyepiece that you loaned me. Mm, how did that work? I, yeah, I quite liked it. I, you, you loaned it to me, mentioned that uh, had some blackouts, which is, you know, uh, basically it's when the eye is difficult to position over the, uh, you know, the big eye lens on the eyepiece, it could be difficult to obtain, uh, you know, what's called the light cone coming to the eye eyepiece. Um, and then when you're not able to quite get it in your eye lined up properly, it, it can black out. I did notice that a little bit. I really didn't think it was that bad. I mean, you could see it, but I definitely seen worse. Like I've, I've definitely seen worse eyepieces, uh, for that. I'm not sure if it's any worse than the, uh, Pentax to be, to be honest, at least in, in that telescope. I know you said it can vary depending on the telescope and the configuration that you're using. So I don't know. Yeah, but I, it's worked great in all my other telescopes, just my 76. It wasn't, it was giving me some issues. Huh? Yeah. That's mm. found that a little bit strange because these telescopes are pretty similar. Mine's just slightly uh, larger. And I think my focal ratio is better by or faster by Point one. So they're, they're almost identical. Yours is just, like I said, just about an inch smaller. So hmm. mm -hmm. anyway, so yeah, so I quite liked it. Um, the interesting thing, you know, and, and it is sort of a funny thing with telescopes. You, have, you and I have noted this before, and that's that with the higher quality telescopes, you don't battle through the bad seeing uh, as much. So they're able to kind of punch through bad seeing. And it's the way that the optical defects in the telescope work with the atmosphere so that the uh, worse the atmosphere and the worse the optical defects are in any given instrument, um, they like compound, right? I think you and I remember uh, we, were, we were comparing some telescopes on, on Saturn once before a number of years ago. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. And, and you can notice even pretty subtle uh, differences in in the optics. So I was really surprised uh, because the seeing on, on Friday, I don't know, did you get out on Friday? No, I, well, I, I took your little 80 millimeter out just for a quick star test, but it was kind of cloudy uh, in my end of the city. So there, I, I just wasn't motivated to drag out a telescope because of the cloud. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it was kind of funny that there was cloud over most of the sky, but we live in opposite ends of the city and, and I don't know how far apart we are, maybe 15 or 20 kilometers or something like that. Um, but yeah, like the, like the, you know, sort of South uh, easterly quadrant of my sky was, was totally clear, but 
the seeing was very poor so you could you could see kind of like any stars were really kind of um you know there was flashing and you know it was very unsteady but what was neat on jupiter is that uh with that five millimeter anyway that's given 150 power in the 100 millimeter telescope which is a little high i think on, on jupiter especially in that kind of seeing condition but i could see all kinds of like little dots and detail on jupiter kind of behind the seeing right Oh, wow. It That's was, very interesting. And, you know, you, you mentioned like the high quality telescope optics can kind of help deal with seeing. I've noticed that too with eyepieces. You know, there's there's times where I would have just chalked up kind of a, a marginal view to bad seeing. Yeah. Um, and then I put in like a, you know, a high contrast, high quality orthoscopic eyepiece. And all of a sudden it's like the seeing got better. And then I go back to say, you know, whatever eyepiece I was using previously and the seeing in quotes, gets worse. Yeah. And, and that's just the quality of, or that's just good optics helping you uh, kind of like you say, punch through it or, or maybe even just bad seeings misdiagnosed sometimes as just, you know, optics not performing as well as they could if, if they were better. Yeah, it is surprising. Like the, I think the eyepiece that we've uh, referenced um, for, for this kind of purpose before is that uh, Pentax 5.1 uh, XO. And it's, it's remarkable um, to go from like a really high quality multi-element eyepiece and, and you think, oh, the scene's pretty good. Or, you know, I feel like I could see lots of detail, um, but you know, it's not quite as steady as, as you'd like it. And then you put that in and then it's, uh, you know, remarkably improved like magic, right? And you're like, wait a second, you know, and it's just any kind of additional like airspace, any kind of fuzz that you get from, you know, you know, even the best multi-coatings, uh, but the more of those that you have, you know, the more impactful that's going to be on the image. Like, it, it's surprising how you notice, um, you know, what, what really one might think should be, you know, very subtle differences um, at, actually at the eyepiece when you're trying to see uh, sort of at the, at the edge of what's possible to see through a telescope. Um, you know, you really can, can see quite a bit more when you get the number of elements down and you get the optical quality uh, fairly high. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is uh, there is some truth to the, the simple glass approach or getting eyepieces that have as few elements as possible. Um, now, but there are some exceptions to that, like the, that 5.1 uh, Pentex XO that we've referenced. Um, it's not like an overly simplistic eyepiece. Like there's no. five or six elements, I think. In five. There. Yeah. I think there's five, but there might be six. Five. Yeah. And, and it's just extremely well done. Um, so, yeah. uh, you know, there's always exceptions, I guess, to every rule and, uh, the XO is certainly one of them. Yeah. Well, I think it's like the Goldilocks, right? It's got the, uh, the lowest number with the highest quality. I think that's what it's threading, right? Yeah. To, to, yeah. to get like this, this beautiful, uh, field in an, in an eyepiece that's unobtainable. Uh, yeah, I didn't compare it. Like I'm still waiting on, uh, getting a mount. So, uh, you know, I'm a bit hobbled by, by just using, uh, the LDAS mounts, uh, that I have, which aren't, aren't working exactly as, as I'd like them to, to work with, uh, with this setup. But, uh, I did get to try out the Prima Lucha rings. Oh yeah. Okay. How are those? Those are pretty cool. I gotta admit those, those work really well. Good, good. They're really, really nice. The only thing that I noticed is that and it's it's not a fault with the rings. Um, 
It's just that I'm mounting them on a Lozmandy Vixen dovetail. Now, let, let me explain this because this gets, even for amateur astronomers that know a lot of this stuff, it gets confusing. So Lozmandy and Vixen are two brand names. So Lozmandy makes pretty much, they just make mounts, I think. And Vixen yeah. makes uh, mounts and all kinds of stuff. But there, these are each also, um, I guess, what do you call it? Like a format or something for the bar that attaches the, uh, the telescope rings and, and thus the telescope to the mat itself. Um, so there's a Lozmini format and a Vixen format. And, and, and they, they don't look that different. The, the Lozmini one is a little bit wider than the Vixen, basically. But what these are is they kind of just sort of slide in. So, so you have like, a, like an opening and then it's like a bit of a grab claw-ish, like depending on your exact mount. And then it grabs on, you, you just turn a screw and it grabs on to this, to this plate. And the plate has holes in it and the holes uh, are, are where you fix the rings and the telescope sits in the rings. But the, uh, the little Lozmini Vixen plate that I have um, has sort of a limited number of, uh, of holes in it. So I only get to use uh, two uh, screws to mount the, uh, the Prima Lucha rings to the plate. And yeah, I'm not so keen on that. I kind of would like to be using two screws per uh, ring in a 100 millimeter telescope. 80 millimeters or less, I think it'd be fine. And this isn't a real heavy telescope, it just, it, it starts to get a little bit on the big side, I think, for just using uh, one screw. So I don't know, I might go and get a Prima Lucha rail dovetail rail and uh and see or try to figure out another way to to mount this off it's not a, not a big deal but uh anyhow so but that azgti mount i talked to uh stefan at, at uh i always have to think about that because it used to be lila nature and now it's the astronomy plus and uh, anyway so he was he was having a little bit of trouble uh tracking this stuff down i guess i guess the uh, skywatcher um, mounts and anyway, the AZ GTI mounts uh, come through Celestron in the States or something like that. Um, so anyway, so he was, he was working on, on track of mine down and he said should uh, hopefully be here sometime in July. So that's sort of an, an exciting thing to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be great. Um, hopefully you get it in time for, well, yeah, know, any planet kind of season start, is starting. You know, yeah. You yeah. And any kind of, yeah. Any kind of planetary observing will definitely benefit by, uh, by having this this little tracking mount, so yeah, I'm pretty pretty excited about that. But uh, you know, you mentioned uh, that you were out briefly on Friday testing out that 80 millimeter telescope. So I had purchased uh, basically a hundred dollar telescope and had made uh, some modification to it. I put a new focuser on it, and then it had these horrible pinch optics. And and uh, I'd finagled you into uh, into kind of working. Uh, maybe working some magic there to get the get the optics working out a little bit better and just wondering how things uh ended up for you on that yeah so friday night i had some spare time and thought i'd begin surgery on your your little 80 millimeter telescope um so i had to remove the um the dew shield so a lot of refractors have a like an attachment at the end of the tube that extends past the lens and its purpose is just to keep dew from forming on the lens. Uh, so I removed that first and then uh, that exposed the lens cell and it was attached to the telescope tube by just three common screws. 
So I undid those screws and then I was able to remove the entire lens cell. So the lens cell is like basically this plastic holder for the glass lens. Um, so it came apart actually really easily. Uh, I was a little concerned because sometimes those things are, you know, a little sticky or, or, or just really tightly put together. Um, but yeah, this one came apart pretty nice. Quick question. Um, how, how difficult was it to get the, uh, dew shield off? Uh, not bad at all. What I did was, um, I just kind of gave it a couple wraps with my knuckle. Um, and then I just started like kind of at the top, pushing it like one way and then the other way, and then just sort of going around in a clockwise direction, just push, pull, push, pull sort of thing to slowly loosen it off. And I don't know if, I don't know if they used glue or anything like that, but after I did pretty much a full rotation, it was loose enough that I was able to pull it off, but it still has enough friction that I don't think you'll have any worry of it just falling off, like even in transit or anything like that. Um, yeah. So I, I, I thought that maybe they had glued that one on because to me anyway, it seemed so tight and I was, I, I hadn't thought of doing, I'm, I'm not as mechanically inclined as you, that's no secret. Um, yeah. I hadn't thought about taking that kind of approach. That's pretty smart. Um, I was just trying to like use like brute force, unidirectional <laughs> and that that was not working so uh, at that point you know i was kind of like felt kind of like you know the caveman trying to open up the beer bottle kind of thing right <laughs> um you know you're not done until it's just smashed on the ground right and you're jumping up and down um but yeah so i appreciate that well that's that's awesome that's awesome yeah so once i got the lens cell out the next step was to uh, free the glass, get the, get the glass lenses out of the lens cell, uh, because with pinched optics, uh, well, maybe let me just back up there. There's a retaining ring that will always be in place some in some fashion to hold those glass lenses in the cell. Now, sometimes that retaining ring, uh, can be tightened too much and causes this, these pinched optics or deformed optics, loosening that corrects it. Um, so on this particular, what, what is it? A mead adventurer? Yeah, it's a mead, uh, adventure scope or mead adventurer. Um, and this is essentially a, a, a new edition of what's uh, lovingly referred to as the ST80. So there's, there's been these 80 millimeter F5 telescopes produced since, I don't know what, like the eighties or something. And the, the really neat part about them is that they are, uh, pretty inexpensive. They always have been. They seem even less expensive now than they used to be. Uh, this one with a, a bunch of stuff uh, came to around, uh, you know, $129 or something like that. The telescope itself is like $99. Bucks. Um, and, you know, for that price, you're really uh, getting a, a, a pretty decent quality, multi-coated for the most part, as good as you're going to get for $99 anyway uh optic that works really well at low power so you know it's basically just a low power telescope low power and wide field like you can get some outstandingly wide fields with that thing it's incredible um so anyway uh the retaining ring on this particular telescope is just a, a like a plastic threaded ring on the front end of the lens cell so it easily unscrewed Um, and then this particular refractor is a doublet. So that means there's two glass lenses, uh, in that lens cell. So I plop them out. Um, and then another thing that 
is recommended, I guess, for these telescopes online is um, the edge of the glass or the edge of the lens is not blackened. So they just grind it in a circle and then put it in the lens cell and that's it. And I sent you a, a photograph of kind of a partially blackened. So what I did is I took a Sharpie marker to the edge of the lens and I blackened it to prevent some stray reflections bouncing off of that ground edge. Um, and it's incredible to see the difference. Like when you look through the glass um, without any blackening added, the, the kind of rough grinding that's left behind is white almost, yeah. which is obviously quite reflective. Yeah. And in a telescope, you don't want any any light bouncing around. If you do, it, it'll it just take away from the crispness and, and the contrast that you would be able to see through that telescope. And just taking a, a Sharpie and, and essentially coloring the that ground edge of the lens was night and day, like literally and kind of pun intended. You know? yeah. It was quite incredible the difference it made. Yeah. So, huh. so anyway, uh, I blackened the edge on both lenses, uh, put them back into the cell. I did clean them prior to that too, uh, just with some Zeiss lens wipes to. Oh, get. wow. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. I pulled, I pulled out no stops here. So, wow. Uh, put it, put it back together. Um, and when I did the retaining ring, I, I tightened it. Um, you, you can kind of feel when it makes contact with the glass because there's suddenly some resistance as you're tightening. Yeah. And I basically left it there. You know, as soon as it touched the glass, that was it. Okay. Uh, it's very easy now to um, either increase that or decrease that because that yeah. dew shield will come off quite easily. And then okay. you don't even have to remove the lens cell. That retaining ring is accessible as soon as the dew shield comes off. Yeah. Um, so put it all back together. Uh, took it out under the night sky. And I should say that before I did any work, I did take the telescope out and I sent you a text after I did it uh, because I wanted to see kind of the before and after, uh, you know, effects. Yes. And, and I'm really glad that you did that because, I mean, part of this was that, well, A, the, the telescope was so compromised that, you know, I was probably just looking at just turning it around and just selling it like for $50 uh, or I shouldn't say that because I put this expensive focuser on it. So probably like $150 uh, online to recoup the cost of the focuser. And then maybe somebody else uh, who's, who's handier than me would take a crack at it. So, um, but as well, I don't think you'd seen like a, like a really good example of really bad optics. And I was like, yeah. Ooh, this would be, you've been, I think you've been fairly lucky in your astronomical purchases. I've had a few stinkers over the years and then this uh, really took the cake, you know? So. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I have been pretty fortunate. I've I've bought uh, a number of telescopes, some new, some used, and they've all really had pretty good optics. Um, so anyway, I did the star test before and after, and a star so what's test. What's a star test? Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. I was gonna say, all right, let's tell people because I don't think. Yeah. And there, there's a really talked... good book by a guy named Suter on star testing astronomical telescopes. I think that's what it's called. If people want yes. the reference. Do you have a copy of that? I do. And I think if, yeah. if you're going to be, you know, and we should have talked about this maybe last week uh, during our book talk. Uh, I think if you're going to own a telescope and, and, you know, I guess if you just buy one in your whole life and that's it, I guess you don't need this book. But if you're going yeah. to, you know, probably buy and sell telescopes and most amateur astronomers do, I think you got to have this book because it really helps you understand how to evaluate telescope optics. And that's, um, and that's important. And, and it's, this is very fun. Yeah. You know, like I loved, I bought that book. I lit when I was living in Ontario, I, I got, I bought that book 
and I read it cover to cover. It's one of those, it's sort of like a magical thing for me anyway, because just the way my mind works. So I read it, I enjoyed the read, but I didn't really understand that much of it. And so what I did is that summer I took it with me and, you know, in Ontario, there's, there's a lot of observers and there's a lot of different telescopes. And um, I was able to go to some star parties and some informal, like we had a lot of informal astronomical gatherings where we'd have like maybe up to 30 people at, a, at an observing session, which is a lot of fun. It's almost like a little star party in itself. And uh, I kind of kept the book in my car and I would actually go and star test people's telescopes for them to get a really good feel for um, what's out there and everything. And it was like, it was amazing. There was, there was one person, I, this is a little bit of a tangent. Do you mind me going on a bit of a tangent? Oh, go for it. Yeah, do it. So there was one individual and he had a telescope that I always wanted to look through called a, I think it's called a Stellar View 80 slash 9. Have you ever heard of this? No. And they're, I'm not sure if they're an acromat or an apocromat, but if they're, if they're an acromat, they're long enough and the glass is good enough that you basically don't get any color and they're, they're highly reputed. But um, when I star tested his telescope, it had the strangest star test. This, this is a little refractor, an 80 millimeter, but I think it's like an F9, okay? Um, and it has, it has good glass. So it's either an apocromat or it's an acromat that's uh, you know, almost completely color corrected. And it looked like it had a four vein spider in it. Wow. And I just went, I, he said, what do you think? And I said, do you like, look, do you really want to know? I mean, you know, if you're enjoying the telescope, then Bob's your uncle, right? Like I didn't want to make the person feel bad. He was a really nice guy and I, I knew him. And he said, no, no, like I want to know. And I said, well, I said, I'll show you. There, there's, there's a strange uh, optical um, aberration here. I'm not, I'm not sure what it is. It's not in this book. I've never seen it before. And I had tested quite a few scopes at that point. And he looked into and he could see it. And he said he wasn't really sure. And for the most part, and the telescope did give good images, like unless you were taking it out of focus. And that's how you do these star tests. You, you, you take them a little bit out of focus. You focus a little bit out on a bright star and then you focus through that star. And the star will go pretty close to a pinpoint or a very small round circle and then on the other side. And what you'll see is a series of rings and these rings, more or less, they kind of look like, uh, like if you sliced open an onion, kind of think is probably the best way to put it. And sometimes you'll see no color once it's in focus, you might see a little bit of color out of focus in, in a refractor. And that, that's all my refractors work. I don't have uh, refractors that are color-free out of focus. But, but this gentleman's telescope had this weird uh, X right through it. So, it worked out really well because he called the manufacturer, which was Stellarview, and it's a reputable company down in the, down in the States. You know, a lot of people buy their, their equipment. And apparently, um, Stellarview uh, does something to some of their telescopes, or at least they did. And, you know, this is 15 years ago now, um, where they, they had put like a, like a second set of screws in it to make sure that the optic wouldn't get damaged during um, transit. And they would include um, a piece of paper uh, that instructed people to just, you just took like an Allen key or something like that. And you just, you just backed off these screws or maybe you could take them out or something. I, I don't know exactly the process, but anyway, uh, this individual contacted Stellar View and then, you know, they were, they were able to get it resolved really quick. Like it's a very, very simple process. So um, that, that right there paid for the book because here this person had a, you know, they're, they're not a crazy expensive telescope, but still it's a telescope, you know, they paid their good money for and it just wasn't working 
um, as the manufacturer had designed. Um, and so we were able to kind of figure out there was something wrong there and, and get that resolved. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Great, great reason for it. You know, and, and another thing that that book taught me that I use just about every time I look through a telescope uh, and that's how to tell if the, the telescope is thermally acclimated to the outside oh, temperature. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, you do have to let the, the telescope reach uh, the same temperature as the outdoor air. Um, and if you don't, there's a risk that there's going to be like currents, air currents within the telescope's tube that kind of distort the view. And just doing a simple star test uh, will tell you right away whether or not that telescope is kind of warm or, you know, if it's nicely acclimated. Yeah. Uh, so that's quite helpful too. Yeah. But anyway, um, so <laughs> thanks for explaining how to, how to do the star test uh, or what to look for. Um, yeah. You should probably use at least, you know, what would you say, around 100 times magnification um, to, to do an accurate star test? Is that fair? Yeah, you, you can use that high power. It's, it's not necessary to go. Really what you want to do is just use enough power that's going to give you those circles. So you're, not, you're going to use like medium power, really, whatever okay. that is in, in your telescope. So, for example, for... Uh, for my 100 millimeter, you know, you can probably use anything from 50 power on up. Should okay. Be, should be fine. And most telescopes, uh, you should be reasonably fine uh, at that. Um, but that book explains exactly how to do it. So I would, don't take sort of my off the cuff, unprepared remarks um, for doing it. Uh, that that book is, is well worth it. And I mean, th these are not expensive books. And I think you can find most of the information online, if you Google suitor star testing, I think much of the information has been put out for free. And man, I feel like that book might cost $40. And considering, you know, if people are yeah. spending at least $400 on a telescope is sort of the entry level point, then spending a, a tenth of that to, to make sure it's working properly is, uh, is good insurance, you know, otherwise, like, how, how would you know, right? Like when I first had telescopes, I didn't know and I had some real stinkers. Um, and that, that really made me feel bad. Um, I guess I shouldn't. And that's why I'm, I, I try to be pretty careful. Like I will almost always star test people's telescopes, but I seldom tell them I'm doing it. Um, you know, unless I'm doing something in particular, you know, like, like, or they want it star test or they think there's something wrong with it, you know, cause yeah. honestly, for the most part, you know, a lot of people don't, don't care. Um, or they're just happy with it the way it works. And that's great. You know, if they're happy with the way it works and it's working and making them happy, then who am I to kind of come in and say, oh, no, you know, I always think yeah. of, I'm gonna, I'm, I don't know why I'm going on tangents today. I always think of the person who took my astronomy class and, and um, you know, we do these sessions. We go out with binoculars and, and, and you know what that's like. We take binoculars out and we go up. Now, you and I own all kinds of expensive binoculars and whatever, but uh, this is what we like to do. But most people don't own expensive binoculars. They're just going to own um, a pretty inexpensive pair of low-end binoculars when they show up at my class, right? Or any class, you know, if you're using binoculars for anything. And this one individual, they showed up with these. Um, they were actually really decent, inexpensive binoculars from about the 80s or something that they had okay. picked up at a yard sale for, who knows, $10, say perfectly good, perfectly serviceable. They were aligned. That's the main thing. You're going to talk about alignment here in a second. And, and they said, yeah, what do you think of these? I said, Hey, yeah, these are great. This is all you need. You know, they, my only comment was if, if they needed to wear glasses, these, you know, would, would reduce the field. But other than that, um, they didn't, uh, you know, they're perfectly fine. And they said, Oh, that's a relief. Cause they had taken some other sort of course that wasn't astronomy. And the instructor told them that their binoculars were garbage 
<laughs> I always felt like so bad for that individual. I'm like, you know what? Like the, the person's probably not going to go out and drop like, you know, a lot of money on vodka. You know, some people will and that's great. But, you know, this person was just like taking like all these interest courses. And uh, anyway, but like, you know, here we are five minutes later and the person hunted down the Andromeda galaxy for the first time by themselves um, and was able to view it. And whether or not they were using a, a $10 um, you know, garage sale binocular or like, you know, a pair that I might've paid like 120 or $150 for like an expensive pair. Um, what's the difference? <laughs> They're, you know, the view is actually pretty similar, more similar than different, right? What's absolutely. Yeah. You, you start to split hairs. Uh, you start point. to split hairs and, and, yeah. you know, again, like, although we, you know, we're buying some expensive gear or whatever, but this is what we like to do. And, you know, we're free, free to do that. But, uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to buy the most, most expensive equipment. And, uh, you know, and this little telescope kind of, kind of shows that, but when, when you are not spending as much money, if you're spending the money that it should work out of the gate, when you take that out, you look at a star, you should, you should be pretty impressed with what you're seeing for a star test. It should look like the, how things should look like version of the images in the suitor book. But you know when you're spending $99 on the absolute cheapest serviceable telescope available, it's going to have some shortcomings. You're going to talk about some of these shortcomings now, and I will shut up. Yes, it, it certainly did not look like the textbook image uh, <laughs> that you would hope to see. Um, so I, I found a bright star. Um, I put in a five millimeter eyepiece that got me a little over 100 times. And I defocused it both directions and really had the same result. Now, what you want is you want to see that bright star. It, in the, it, it kind of looks like a bullseye where you have a, a star in the middle and then you're going to have rings around it. And you want all of those rings to be circular uh, and you want them all to be somewhat evenly spaced apart. Um, your little 80 millimeter, as you know, was not that. Um, yeah. That central star was not central. It was kind of way off on the rings. Um, mm -hmm. And the rings themselves were um, almost kind of teardropish, right? And, yeah. and the teardrop certainly is, is the sign of pinched optics. Uh, if you look in Suter's book, um, you know, that's the image that he shows. You know so, what I call it? <laughs> what's that? Well, like, well, it's funny, you know, I'll, you know, I, I don't know why we're just chatting today and it's, it's rainy weather. This is going to be like the longest podcast ever, but, um, <laughs> so, you know, I was having some asthma the past couple of weeks and, you know, they always say like, you know, take the medication your doctor gives you. Of course, I don't like taking medication for anything. I don't like taking drugs or anything like that either. It's fine. Just who I am. But, uh, you know, you know, I just was resisting taking my medication. So finally I take it. Of course I feel better right away. And then right before this podcast, I ate all these, um, jalapeno nacho chips, <laughs> But uh, I always say that, um, you know, the, uh, the badly pinched optics, so you say it looks kind of like a teardrop. I think it looks more like a, like a Dorito potato chip. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> things have gone really bad in your optical system. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what it can look like. Yeah. So, so that was the before star test. And then the after star test, I feel like the rings, uh, like that teardrop or Dorito shape has kind of disappeared. Like I think loosening that retainer ring yeah. certainly helped, but, um, that central star was not central still. Like it yeah. was kind of off, uh, I'd say to the top left, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, which is I a sign I of miscollimated optics, yeah. I think. Now collimation means uh, perfect alignment in your, your optical system. And yeah. that goes for any telescope, whether it's mirrors or lenses. So if it's not collimated, that means uh, that 
that light that's coming through the telescope isn't going straight through the way it should. Um, and sometimes with like on uh, Dobsonians or Newtonians, they're very easy to collimate. They're made to collimate. There's some screws that you adjust on the primary mirror to align everything and change the angle of the mirror. Um, and it's pretty simple to do. But on refractors and like uh, even Cassegrains, it can be a lot more challenging. Uh, in fact, some refractors you really can't collimate. Uh, in order to do so, you need to have collimation screws in the lens cell and not every refractor comes with those. Right. In fact, most don't uh, yeah. in my experience and the little 80 millimeter is another example of that. So I think one thing that could try, and I don't know if it would result in anything, is so there's the two lenses that make up the telescope because it's a doublet is just slowly rotating one of those lenses and maybe that brings it into collimation um hard to say i don't know that 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 could do it um the one thing that i'm thinking of um and and that could definitely help so (laughs) here's what here's what i witnessed when i pulled the first focuser off the the tube um was is not round like it was oh. really yeah it was it's re- the tube is almost like teardrop shaped like it was it was <laughs> out of round so i don't know if that could be doing it too i mean i i don't know like like i, I don't know how much you want to futz around with this shane i mean i pr- really appreciate this but uh, if you want you know you can bore it for a long time it's great um but if you pull that focus off which is pretty easy just back those screws you just take the yeah. screws out there's two or three screws and then it just you just slide it out. It's pretty easy. Even I could do it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you'll see that that tube is is really out of round. So I was hmm. a little bit thinking. Well, that and anytime you put a focuser on a telescope, you also risk you know throwing collimation out a little. There's bit. that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like again, those the high end telescope makers, they'll add little shims on the edge of the focuser just to get it perfectly aligned in the telescope tube. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's quite a few points, I guess, in that optical train where the collimation error could exist and uh, yeah. probably pretty hard to track down. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It's great though, that you're able to, to do the main work. And if you want to keep it for a little while and play around with it, I mean, it'd be nice. So that telescope, one of the reasons why I bought it is, is for observing with you because you have the perfect uh, eyepiece to mate with it, which is the Nagular 31. Yeah, great, great wide field eyepiece that is, um, you can use it in fast telescopes like that little 80 millimeter. Um, and still, you know, theoretically, you should have pretty sharp stars all the way through the field. Well, definitely better now. Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm curious to actually see what it looks like under, a, you know, a darker sky with a lot of stars because the second test Friday night, like I mentioned earlier, was kind of cloudy and I really wasn't able to see too much up there. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, yeah, thanks so much. Thanks so much for doing that. I do really, really do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I have another one coming. I have another 80 millimeter coming. So yeah, yeah it'll be, it'll be neat to compare the two. Hopefully that one is a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll see what, uh, what we can do with it. Um, but so maybe I should say like, why, why are we, why am I getting these? I say we, cause like Shane's going to use one as well. Um, the, the method to my madness is this, and that is that, uh, there are times where we don't wish to be taking out our expensive telescopes because of uh, some of the adverse conditions that we have to do astronomy in. So when, and, and this happens at least once every two years where we have 
um, very compromised conditions and we're doing public outreach and education. So we have a lot of people from the public there, um, which we're trying to show them stuff through telescopes. But we've had a, a few different scenarios. We've had scenarios where there's uh, been a lot of smoke from like a campfire or something even. Um, we've had situations where there's been like very small but light rain showers moving in, which aren't a big deal for an inexpensive telescope. If you drop some lens, you just grab one of Shane's ice wipes and you, you wipe it off. It's not really a big deal. You don't really want to be doing that as much with, with the more expensive gear. So my, my thinking to get these inexpensive uh, 80 millimeter telescopes and getting them working well enough is that when we get in those situations, we can still uh, show people the stars and planets like they work pretty well. And for the most part, like a person who's never looked through a telescope before is, is going to really enjoy the views and we're going to give them the, the full sky show that we're, that we're there to do. And, and it's only a sort of once in a while kind of thing, you know, just when we get those adverse conditions. Like I was thinking last year, like I felt bad. Um, we had, had those little uh, like rain showers that were coming through. Like we'd get a rain shower and then it would clear. I don't know if you remember that or not. Yeah, yeah, I do. And, and then you just couldn't set up like even, even some of our, of our uh, friends who were there uh, setting up as well with, uh, you know, with, with their lesser expensive telescopes didn't want to have them out in those conditions. And there was a lot of dust and then it would rain and the dust would stick to, it, it really not great. So, so the expensive scope stayed in, but uh, my thinking is, and they mount up to all the mounts that, that, I, that we have anyway. So if I get a couple of these, I mean, you know, we can we can maybe even throw them in like Mike's camper or something like that for the summer, and then if we ever need them, like there they are, right? It's no big deal, you know, to have have them kicking around. Yeah, it's a great idea. I like it. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought it'd be interesting. And the second one is even cheaper. So the first one was I I called it a ninety nine dollar telescope, like, and I'm thinking like ninety nine dollars American. I think that's what it was. Um, but this one was thirty dollars Canadian. <laughs> So I'm not sure if I'll get it or not. Like I'm having trouble getting the mount. So I don't know if they're going to, if they're going to send it along or not. I don't know what the story is. So uh, anyway, we'll see. <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed. So anything else to add Shane? That was, this is like our longest one yet. Last week they were shorter this week. I guess I'm bored because it's been so uh, rainy today. So. No, that's good. Thanks, Chris. All right. And do you want to mention like how people can stay in touch with us or anything like that? Yeah, so we are on, well, so the podcasts are hosted on Podbean. Uh, so if you have an account there, you can message us through that, uh, I guess, app. Um, but we're also on Twitter. So if you look up at Actual Astronomy, that's us. And uh, we tweet out notifications for every new episode. Um, but feel free to send us messages or you know comments or anything like that. Sounds good. All right. Well, if there's not anything else, then we'll end it there. We thank everybody for listening. Really appreciate it. We're having a lot of fun doing this. Talk to you soon. Thanks.